Your flesh is weak. If your will tilts in that direction, you will give in to sin. But if you feed the Spirit, God's Spirit inside of you is extremely powerful, and it can conquer the enemy. So feed your Spirit and keep it strong. Don't let the fight inside of you die. Just to share with you a little bit of insight into maybe what we're getting at tonight. I grew up in the country. So if you don't know what that means, let me explain. Uh, in high school, I lived on Main Street, but across the street from me was a farm on Main Street. That's what I mean by I lived in the country. So suffice it to say, I, I know you've all experienced it a little bit out here where you're driving at night and you have to be mindful of deer. It's exponentially worse where I came from. Now, that's one side of this story. The other side of this story is that I'm also known for just messing with people. I just like to prank people and, and mess with them. Give you a little insight. The last job where I worked in an office, um, you couldn't leave your computer on near me if you walked away from it. Because I would do things like, you know, put a piece of tape on your mouse so that the optical wouldn't work when you were trying to utilize it. Uh, if I thought you were coming back fast, I might move everything on your desk to a mirrored image of where it was before if I knew you were gonna be gone for a couple of days. If I thought I had enough time, one of my favorite things to do was to take a screenshot of your desktop, make it the background, and then hide all of your folders so that you would click on all of your folders and nothing would happen because you're just clicking on the background of your desktop. So that's a little bit about who I am. You're welcome. Uh, one of my favorites was there, there was a person in the cubicle next to me who had said that she has heightened awareness, awareness ever since she became a mom. She notices everything. And I thought, let's put that to the test. So every meeting, every lunch, every time she walked away from her cubicle, I would move any reference sheets she had hanging in her cubicle slightly, like half an inch, just further down, until what was once eye level is now like elbow level. And she finally noticed and went, what is wrong with my cubicle? Who moved all my stuff? And I've been moving it gradually for you know a month now. Uh, so that's just kind of who I am, all right? I like to have fun, and especially at others' expense. So I have a sister. You might know where this is going now. Uh, she is easily frightened. And we would hang out, you know, especially once we had both kind of gotten post high school and you know, go out to dinner or something and just hang out and catch up and see how we were doing with each other's lives and what's going on and all of that. Now, on the way home, I was driving. One of my favorite things to do is as we were almost home, because again, there's loads of deer out there, 
is I would hit the brakes really, really hard for no reason and then make this noise <gasps> and that face, which you can't see in the recording, but you understand from context. And she would freak out thinking she was about to die. Now, the first time I did this to her, again, no, I say first time because this was not a one-time occurrence. Uh, the first time I did this to her, she cried for 10 minutes because she was so overwhelmed with this idea of fear that she thought we were going to get in this horrific wreck and we were going to hit some animal. Just to make it a little bit more clear, I drove like a hatchback sedan that was you know, basically a tin can on wheels. If we hit a deer, we probably would have died. But she was scared out of her mind for like 10 minutes straight. And then when she realized that I was laughing at her and not concerned, she thought it was funny. And so she thought, I have an idea. I'm gonna invite some of my friends to come hang out with us and then have you drive us home and do the exact same thing. And I did it to them too, because it's really funny. But also, the sheer terror in her eyes, as she really had no idea, she thought I was seeing something she could not. And I was preventing death from happening, was what was in her mind. And the tears of just overwhelming, just satisfaction or joy at the fact that she was okay and that the fear was over and dealing with that stress relief that everything was okay when the car had stopped and we hadn't hit anything, that is the moment that I wanna hone in on. Now I messed with her and it was funny and I still talk about it around her because I still think it's hilarious and she does too now, but that is something that she'll never forget not only because of the funny story now, but because of how she felt afterwards, how alive she felt when her mortality became very real. What we're going to be talking about in Romans chapter six is kind of that very idea. There, up to this point, Paul has been pointing out that humanity has a problem, sin. It has been passed down to us since Adam, since the very first man, and we have not been able to overcome this problem. And the problem of sin is that the wages of sin is death. It leads to death. We have forgotten to take seriously sin. We have taken it a lot more lightly than God does, and we haven't addressed the problem properly. Paul really takes his time to point out over the first five chapters of the book of Romans, how serious sin is and what the result of sin is. It is separation from the eternal God, and God is the source of life. From the breath of God, the universe and life came into existence. He is the source of life. If you are cut off from the source of life, the result is death. And sin separates you from God, so the result is death. And he has been very serious about this and pointing this out. But he has also pointed out the solution, which is Jesus. We are justified before God because of the sacrifice of Jesus. And we are justified by faith alone. 
by faith in Christ alone. That's all it takes. And that is the summary of the first five chapters of Romans. The sin problem and the solution. And the solution is faith in Christ because of his sacrifice on the cross. We are saved by grace alone. Nothing we did, not works, just the grace of God. And then he starts out in chapter 6 by saying this. After all of that, what shall we say then? If it's really true that we are saved this easily by faith alone in Jesus Christ, if we are saved that easily just by the grace of God, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? And what he's saying is, well, if it's that easy, if you're just forgiven and justified by Christ, does that mean that you can now continue sinning? if you have faith in Christ because you're forgiven by Jesus? And now this argument is actually still used today against the church. People still say this, even though Paul anticipated it 2,000 years ago. And his, in verse 2, he says, Certainly not, because God takes sin seriously, and so should we. Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin, live any longer in it. And so what he's saying is, when you put your faith in Christ, the old you is dead. You've been given new life. He expounds on this. He says, or do you not know that as many of us, as were baptized into Christ Jesus, were baptized into his death? Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in the newness of life. If you have put your faith in Christ, if you've been justified by his grace, the old you is dead. The baptism symbolizes this. When you go down into the water, it symbolizes the death of the old life. And as you come up out of that water, cleansed by the water, you receive a new life. That's what the term born again means. It's not a type of Christian, as though some might call it today in culture. Are you a born-again Christian? That's not what this means. Born again is that you have new life because you've been justified by faith in Christ. And so the old you is dead. Are you leaving it dead? Paul is pointing out the old you is gone and buried with Jesus, and the new you is resurrected with him. You've been given new life by the grace of God. So why on earth would you continue to walk in your old life if you've experienced this clean slate? It doesn't make sense. Verse 5, For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. We recognize the death of the old life, we should also recognize the power of the new life. The same power that rose Jesus from the grave is in you. That's a lyric from a Jeremy Camp song, because it's true. The same power that rose Jesus from the grave, the resurrection power, is in you if you put your faith in Christ. Knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin, for he who has died has been freed from sin. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. And he just is really talking 
in repetition, pointing this out in the same way. You have given up your old life and you've been given new life. Not only have you been given new life, you've been given the power through the Holy Spirit and the baptism of the Holy Spirit to live the new life. So if you believe in Christ, if you have died with Christ, should you not also believe that you have the power to live with him and live in the new life? Knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over him. Think about that for a moment. As we talk about that intense moment at the beginning of recognizing the mortality of life, the fragility of life. Why is life fragile? Because of sin. Our sin is what causes death. God is deadly serious about sin. But if we are justified in Christ, because of the resurrection, death no longer has dominion over him, which means it no longer has power over you. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, I like the way that that's put because I am from the country, so I understand what reckon means. If you ought to reckon yourself dead to sin, but alive to God. You ought to consider yourself dead to sin. You ought to acknowledge in your mind that sin has now no power over you because of Christ on the cross. It says, this is where it gets really important and the nuts and bolts of application come into what Paul is saying. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body that you should obey in its lusts. What is he saying? You have the will. This is, this is where you stand. The old life is dead, and it is calling out to you. You have the power to live in the new life through the Spirit of God, but your will is the thing that determines which side of the scale you're going to end up on. Don't let sin reign in your life. Don't give in to the temptation of the flesh, but rather live and dwell in the power of the Spirit to live in the newness of life. It says that you should obey, not that you absolutely can 100% of the time. You should obey because of the power of Christ in you. But we are human. We are still in this battle of flesh versus spirit. Though we have been dead to our old life and been given the power in the spirit to new life, we still exist in this broken mortal body with the flesh. So we're in this war, our flesh and our spirit waging against us with our will in the middle tilting the needle back and forth. Will we have the willpower to choose the spirit? And it says, obey it in its lusts. So this is how I want to phrase this to you. Do your passions control you or do you control your passions? Are you led by the emotions and whim and the moment? Do you get caught up in the flesh of the moment? Do you sin because you, don't, you can't think through the next step? Does your flesh control you? Or do you have the self-control to control yourself in the moment? Do you control your passions? This is really what growing up is all about. I remember when I got married, everyone around me 
had said, I can't believe this finally happened. And I get it. I can't believe it happened either. I don't know how I tricked her into marrying me, but I did. And then I experienced this life in marriage with a partner who was there for me when I needed them, who was a partner listening to me, who gave me the courage to do things I couldn't do when I was on my own, and someone who fought with me when I was wrong, someone who corrected me when I needed correcting and who took correction when she needed it. I was able to grow faster because I had a partner in my life who was willing to test me and make sure that I didn't die to limitations and who helped gave me the will to tilt into the spirit of God. And I remember people asking me, like, how's married life? Which if you ever, if, you're, if you've never been married, when you get married, you'll be asked that question every day for the first five years. It's just, that's how, how's married life? But my response was always this. If I knew that growing up was this, I wouldn't have put it off for so long. We've been lied to by the culture about responsibility and how it holds you back. That you should be as irresponsible as you can for as long as you can. That you should be as young as possible for as long as possible. Indulge your adolescence. Extend it for as long as possible. But then when you get to experience responsibility and taking care of another person and being responsible for their well-being as well as they for yours, you have more purpose. And everything you do has more meaning. And the time spent with her, I would take well over whatever fun I had as a bachelor. Because I had responsibility, I had to contain the passions and be goal-oriented and move forward in life because I had a purpose to care now. Do your passions control you or do you control your passions? So, do not present your members as instruments, meaning your, basically your body parts, your appendages. Do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. Now there's an old saying, maybe you've heard it before, idle hands are the devil's playthings. You ever heard that before? It's interesting because God actually commands us to rest, but the day of rest is not to just be a day to loaf. The Sabbath is meant to be holy. So our rest isn't meant to just be selfish. It's meant to spend time that's holy, time with God, so that we're not becoming useless. And so this is kind of presented here in this point of what you do, it's easier to avoid sin by doing what's right than just trying to avoid what's wrong. If you constantly think about not wanting to commit that sin that you struggle with, you will end up doing it. But if you instead replace the time that you worry about falling into sin with doing something that is good or righteous, you have replaced that problem and it's easier to do what's right than it is to spend time trying not to do what's wrong. If you are a Bills fan, you will understand it this way. For a long time, they were coached as all of our depressed years of not making the playoffs they seem to be coached in every game to not lose, 
but they never tried to win. And there's a big difference. They were never aggressive in trying to attempt to score. They were just constantly trying to run out the clock when they were ahead. And it always caused them to have the same problem. They never made it to the postseason. They never had a chance at ultimate victory because they were so concerned with not losing that they ended up losing. If they were more concerned with winning, they probably would have won. So, verse 14, you shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under the law, but under grace. Now, this is an interesting parallel, right? Because before Paul is saying, don't let sin reign in your mortal body. You should obey. And then he says in verse 14, sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under the law, but under grace. So, there's what you should do. You should obey. You should not let sin reign. You're not going to be perfect at it because it's a process. This is why Paul writes in Philippians, to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. It's the sanctification process. Once you are justified, you will continue working your way closer and closer to God. You should obey him and you should avoid the lust of the flesh. But here's why. Sin will not have dominion over you. Think of it this way. When you are justified by grace before God, you have now been adopted as a child of God in the family of God. That is who you are. You are now a prince in heaven or a princess. You are a child of God. You have now put on the righteousness of Christ because he has cloaked you in his righteousness. That's who you are when you're justified by grace. So who you are and who you're meant to be when you're saved by Christ, you should be working yourself towards that image. It does not make sense to continue to live in the old life. If you were trying to go from entry-level position to CEO, it would not make sense to continue to want to work like you were at an entry-level position. You should not learn, you should not have no knowledge of the company. You should not have no new skills. You should, you should be learning more and more about what goes into running a company if you want to be the CEO. You're never going to gain ground. But if the promise of God by being saved is that you now are a part of the family of God, you've been adopted into his family, that's who you are. Why would you act like someone who's not? Why would you act like the world that has no relationship with him? Why would you not want to look like the greatest gift that you've ever been given? The righteousness of Christ has been bestowed upon you, and you're welcomed to the, the wedding supper of the Lamb. You've been invited to the greatest moment in history. You've been invited into the Creator's relationship. Why? Why would you settle for so much less? That's Paul's point. You shall not have dominion over you. What then shall we sin? Because we are not under the law, but under grace. And he brings back the point, just because we have grace doesn't mean that we shouldn't sin. He says, certainly not. Of course we shouldn't sin. Of course we shouldn't look like our old self. We should look like what we seek to obtain because of the grace 
of God. Do you know that to whom you present yourselves, us, that whom you present yourself slaves to obey, you are that one slave whom you obey, whether of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness? But God be thanked that though you were slaves of sin, yet you obeyed the heart from the doctrine to which you were delivered. And having been set free from this sin, you became slaves of righteousness. I speak in human terms because of that weakness of your flesh. So it goes on to finish the verse. For just as you presented your members as slaves of uncleanness and of lawlessness, leading to your leading to more lawlessness. So now present your members as slaves of righteousness for holiness. Now, all of that is really basically saying, you're going to worship something. You're going to belong to something. Are you going to give yourself over to sin or righteousness? Are you going to worship God or yourself or the world? What are you going to do? Those are your options. Your will stands in between your flesh and the spirit. Which one are you going to direct it too. Now, to put this in perspective, I'll share this with you. This is what I thought of when I read this this week. Mike Tyson's final fight. I don't know if any of you watch boxing or if you have any clue what I'm talking about, but I'm sure you've heard of Mike Tyson for whatever reason you've heard of him. But he was an absolute monster of a boxer in the 90s. But there came a moment when he started to lose. He lost to Evander Holyfield twice. He lost to Buster Douglas. That's when his career started to go downhill. And then in his final fight, he retired. Uh, he didn't get knocked down. He just he quit. He retired from the fight. And when the, the journalist came to ask him what was going on in his head, he gave maybe the most honest interview an athlete has ever given. I said, what were you thinking? He said, I just can't, I just can't do it anymore. He said, I can condition my body but I don't have the fighting guts anymore. He could keep himself in shape physically, but his flesh is only a small part of the equation. It didn't matter how much muscle mass he gained, his flesh was still weak. The thing that made him a monster in the ring was his unbelievable will to destroy his opponent, and the animal inside of him was dead. He didn't have the will to continue anymore, no matter how strong he was physically. This is the idea. Don't lose. Your flesh is weak. If your will tilts in that direction, you will give in to sin. But if you feed the Spirit, God's Spirit inside of you is extremely powerful, and it can conquer the enemy. So feed your Spirit and keep it strong. Don't let the fight inside of you die. Keep aiming for righteousness. In opposition to that picture, we have this in verse, in verse 20 and 21. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. What fruit did you have then in the things of which you are now ashamed? For in the end of those things is death. And what Paul is saying here is when you were a slave to sin, you didn't consider righteousness. You were free to do whatever you wanted. You were free from righteousness because you were a slave to sin. You were only concerned with letting your lusts control you rather than you controlling them. And this reminds me of a really famous scene from a movie. I don't know if you've seen it or not, but there's a, a movie I think is an incredible film called Shawshank Redemption. 
Now, if you haven't seen it, I'm going to talk about sort of a tangential character, so I'm not going to give anything away. Well, except for this scene. But there was a guy, a really old man in the prison. He had, it's a movie about prison life. And there's a really old man named Brooks in the prison. And he became really important in the prison. He was in prison for like two life sentences, and he got sentenced when he was very young. And he ended up becoming very popular in the prison because he knew everything that was going on inside the prison. He became the librarian. He could help people smuggle things in. He became important in the lives of criminals. But he had served two life sentences back to back, and the entire world changed around him while he was behind bars. And in the movie, they call it inst institutionalized. And so when he end up, ended up getting parole and being set free from his sentence that he had paid his debt to society after serving two life sentences, he goes out into the world. They, give, they get him in a halfway house and they get him a job and he doesn't know how to be free. There's a, a famous scene where the camera looks at a rafter in his apartment and it says, Brooks was here. And then the camera pans down and Brooks is hanging from the rafter and he hung himself. He couldn't, he didn't know how to be free. He couldn't experience freedom from his old life. And it led to his death. That to me is like this incredible picture of what Paul is writing about. Have you become so consumed with the world or with culture or with the sin of this world that you don't know how to be free from it? The power of the Holy Spirit gives you the ability to be free, but your, your will needs to tilt towards the Spirit because your flesh is weak. And if you... You don't know how to be free. The result is death. But now, having been set free from sin and having become slaves of God, you have your fruit to holiness and to the end, everlasting life. And the conclusion of chapter 6 is this, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Sin equals death. The wages of sin is death. We are all on that path. But being justified by faith in Jesus covers us in Christ's righteousness and restores the relationship with God. And instead of being separated from God, we are now reconnected to the source of life. So the end result is no longer death because of the separation but being reconnected to the source of life and eternal life is now the gift that we get adopted into God's family. And so if we really understand sin and how deadly serious God takes it, and we really understand what we're saved from and what the gift of eternal life is, then Paul is saying here, why on earth would we continue to choose to sin? Instead, what we should do is replace the lusts of the flesh with acts of righteousness because we fully understand what we were saved from and what we were given in return. The gift of eternal life awaits anyone who's willing to put their faith in Christ.
And it doesn't matter what your past is. It doesn't matter what evil or sin you've committed in your past. It doesn't matter if you've had addictions. It doesn't matter in any way that you've failed. It doesn't matter if you're willing to repent, turn your back on that life, and face Jesus instead, and you are reconnected to the source of life. And instead of a life of death being consumed and directed by your lusts and passion, you can be given a brand new life, a clean slate, connected to the Spirit of God that gives you the source of life to move forward in the power, the same power of the resurrection that rose Jesus from the dead can live in you and give you the power to live in righteousness and to strive towards God. And so this question of, are you saved by grace or works? Not works. You're saved by the grace of God. But when you understand what that means, your gratitude should lead you to want to live a righteous life because you know not only what you're saved from, but what you've gotten in return, the gift of eternal life in Jesus Christ. And that gift is available to anyone who will call upon the name of the Lord. Let's pray. As I pray, I'm going to invite the band to come back up. They're going to close us out with one song, but let's pray together. Father God, thank you. Thank you for the brilliance of Paul and the work of the Holy Spirit through him that penned this book, that gives us insight into your gift. Help us to understand what we were saved from and what we were given in return. Help us to turn our back on the old life and to set our will in direction of the Spirit so that we can walk closer and closer to you and become more like who you want us to be. The gift we've received as children of God, help us to reflect that gift rather than the culture around us. And help us to spread that message of the gospel and what you can have. You don't have to be slaves to sin. You don't have to have your passions drive you. You can drive them because the power of the Spirit is available to anyone who calls on Jesus. Help us to spread the good news and to share the truth of the gospel with those who need to hear it. Pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.